Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacey Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of ThePaleoMom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Guess where I'm calling you from? What, what, from from your office? My brand, up? my brand new home in my office. It's amazing. Like that means you actually have unpacked stuff. I have. The office was the very last thing that we had not yet unpacked, and we unpacked it yesterday in order to record today. So, hang on. Does this mean? Do I do I understand the implication correctly that you are officially done unpacking in your new house? Yes and no. I think that's a loaded <laughs> question because you know that I'm getting my kitchen renovated. So there is definitely stuff and I'm turning my foyer closet into a bathroom. So there's stuff that needs to ultimately go in the foyer closet that's not unpacked. And there's stuff that needs to go in the kitchen that's not unpacked. But that's with intention. Um, and we never have tackled the stuff that's in the garage that came out of the pods. My goal there, however, is just to, like, if we can make it, like, because it has been four or five months at this point, like, another month or two of being in this house and having no idea what's in those boxes, then I'm confident we don't need them and can just literally donate them without knowing what's inside. Wow. So I I have like, it's one of my like, um, when I get really stressed about things, it's like one of the things I daydream about is about like <laughs> buying a, a, like a tiny, tiny, you know, one of those micro homes and having to get rid of everything. It's, it's just one of those, it's like, oh, I, I don't know why. I, I like blame my stuff for all my s- s- deadlines. Well, okay. So no correlation whatsoever. But the idea of just purging like that is like, oh, sounds so good. Yes. But also I will tell you this, this actually happened to me. I am not making this up. I am not over-exaggerating. I know that it sounds preposterous, but... One of the things that was in the pods for a really long time was the rest of my wardrobe. I had pulled out basically like one sixth of my wardrobe uh, to make closets look bigger and um, had been operating off of that minimum wardrobe for about four to five months. And one of the first things that I pulled out of the garage from the pods was my clothes. Cause I knew what they were immediately by looking at them. And, um, cause nobody else in the house had to do that. <laughs> that was a me problem. <laughs> so any clothes down there, I knew were mine. So, um, I unpacked them and I put them all in my closet over a Saturday and a Sunday. And when I went to get dressed for work on Monday morning, what I thought was going to be this like amazing choir singing moment of, Opening I up. can wear all the things. I have yes. so many options. I got super, super stressed out and overwhelmed, and I tried on like seven things before work. It was crazy. Before, hang on, before just like a normal day at work. Yeah, it was just like a regular Monday, and I got so overwhelmed by the options. Like I said to Matt, wow, that was a huge indicator for me that too many options really is stressful because I I saw it manifest itself immediately. So I totally thinned out my closet um, over the next couple of days and I'm going to like do that and do that and do that until I'm not going to quite go down to like the one sixth I was at, but I want to at least go down to like a third, maybe a half. But there's a whole lot in there that like I just don't need and it's stressing me out, so... What's I don't, that? I don't find the idea of getting rid of any of my clothes appealing. <laughs> like, I like my clothes. Well, I thought that too. Like I love buying things. Um, but 
you know, when you feel that moment, you're like, oh, I get it. I this the universe is making this really clear to me right now. We're going to solve this problem. <laughs> I mean, I wish every problem had such a obvious solution. Oh, I have too many choices of clothes and it's stressful. I'm going to donate some clothes to, you know, Goodwill or or you know whatever good yep. cause. Like that is that is a like a really straightforward solution. Win 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 for everybody. Um, well, I, I do have to say this is the first podcast we have recorded since we recorded live together. Um, and I just wanted to reiterate, uh, for our listeners, just how much fun that was. It was to me, what was so, it was, I mean, we had an amazing, amazing family vacation visiting you guys. Um, my, my girls have been asking like, when can we go back? Um, and, uh, and you know, it was just like, your watching is like, no, no, those boys ruined you. We're never, no, he, he was like, <laughs> you know, that was, um, I think I had shared this on the podcast. That was by far the, like, like 50% longer than the longest driving day we'd ever done before with the kids. Um, so it was about 13 hours door to door by the time we stopped, you know, to switch drivers and, and have a couple quick picnic meals on the road. And, um, and so that was like by by far the longest travel day we'd ever done with the kids in well with us driving. Like we've done airplane travel that's that long, but that's a different thing because we don't have to pay attention to not crash. That's the pilot's job. Um, so, uh, and neither one of, neither one of us are dri- good drivers. Like we hear, you know, like Matt was saying, oh, it sounds great. I could just you know get on the road and get in the zone. I'm like. Tell me more of this zone that you of which you speak. I don't, I don't experience this driving zone. This is not a thing that I that I have in me, and my husband doesn't either. Like if either one of us was good at it, I think it would change the experience. Um, but you know, we came back at the end of it, and we're like, no, like we did it. It was okay. We survived. Uh, we listened to some some good audiobooks, and like we we can do this and it, it was kind of one of those experiences of like well hey now now that we've if we can master that like let's look at all the really cool places that are within an easy drive from Atlanta that we could now turn into like family long weekends and not that we've actually taken steps towards planning anything because I'm trying to get a book to the printer but um but I think it, it just sort of it made uh, that type of vacation feel, I think, a little bit more accessible for us. And the fact that the kids slept well in a strange bed, you know, like that was that was the easiest they've ever been in, a, you know, a strange, you know, di- different house, different food, different, you know, different beds. Like those are all things that are, ch- I mean, those are challenging for adults too, but adults, you know, can get over it and kids sometimes can't. Um, but, you know, it the trip on the whole was just, it was just lovely. It was so much fun to hang out with you guys. I loved the, the live recording. I loved sightseeing. I loved just being with you. And, um, and it, it just made like, now we're like, Hey, next time we go to DC, like we're literally talking like that. So, um, so thank you. Like, thank you for having us. Thank you for finding us a location to, to record in. And especially like the chaos of having us, three days after you moved into your new house (laughs) that was crazy that's not what that's not what sane people do no it's not and retrospectively um the and then having like the july 4th party i just i was like no i can't i just it was too much but um i wanted to make sure that you had a good experience while you were here and I totally caught up on my sleep and finished unpacking after you were gone and everything ended up being fine. But I am the kind of person that gets super stressed out um, through clutter and chaos, like physical chaos. I mean, I think that's a normal experience. I think um, I've always been um, a person who, you know, it's I, I don't necessarily need things to be clean, but I need things to be tidy. And when things are tidy, I'm like, okay, I can breathe. Yes. And yeah. Matt's the opposite. He can't see clutter and chaos for in order to fully tidy it like he he cannot literally see it the same way that probably you see it or i see it but he cannot do dirty right so he 
will wipe down counters, but there will still be like objects all over the counter. <laughs> so it's an interesting dynamic. But no, I think like, every couple needs a tidy person and a clean person. Yeah, I think that's a out. great combination. It works out. Yeah. But I will say that, um, like the the fact that you guys were here and I was trying to feel like I wanted to be a good hostess, but then there were boxes everywhere and we were trying to get stuff done. And at first it was funny and we were Instagram storing it. Like it took us three attempts to make breakfast one morning because we didn't have a pan. We didn't have this. We couldn't figure out how to get the stove the, started. The stove. Oh my gosh. I mean, that was really happening. Like it was, you know, like it was that's a- that that's your stove. Yeah. That, that, that requires, I believe, an advanced engineering degree to to actually operate. <laughs> we literally like, had to Google how to turn on our own stuff. I was like Googling like the manufacturer's instructions. Like, yeah. is, is there a serial number on this stove that I can like look this up? Because yeah, yeah that was that was insane. But fortunately, you guys had patience with us, and everything turned out fine. Yeah, well, I mean, like we knew we know what it's like to move. I mean, living in Atlanta, this is the longest time we've ever lived in one place um, since we were teenagers, but my husband and I, and um, you know, we, we were moving every year to two years before that. So, you know, we, we've, we've moved enough and we've moved across countries, you know, like we've, we've moved from one country to another. Like we've, we've, we know, we know what it's like and we know what it's like to do with kids. And um, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, like for me, I really wanted to be able to give you the space to like, if you need to unpack some boxes, that's fine. I have, I have a book I could be working on. It's all good. It's all good. Uh, yeah. So, and the kids, you know, I actually thought that I was, um, not that I, I wasn't worried about it. I thought the kids would get along really well. I was happy that they got along even better than I thought they would. Like they just really hit it off, uh, you know, especially like Wesley and Mira were like peas in a pod. Holy smokes. Um, yeah. so that was, that was really fun. I, I, um, I really enjoyed, um, watching that connection and, uh, yeah. So it's, it's like our listeners who, hi, by the way, we didn't say hello, um, feel like they're connected to us. Like we have a friendship, but it's unspoken from them to us. So imagine if you will, <laughs> that you just showed up at our house and we're like, yeah, our kids are totally get along. Cause we've been you know hanging out with you for five years doing this podcast and um you just kind of cross your fingers and hope everything works out but as you imagined because you're friends for a reason and you talk every week it all works out yeah I mean it's 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 sort of a funny thing to think like because you and I have such a a great friendship and great you know rapport generally right that's why this podcast works um you just kind of like assume that the whole family will get together and and like each other and get along and uh it's nice when that's actually true and um yeah i know it was it was great and i i do want to you know also do a shout out to the people who um came out to the live recording um you know thank you everyone who came out it it was such a i thought fun experience to be able to um, have that, it was like the instant feedback um, that was so cool and the ability for people to ask follow-up questions because one of the things that happens for us, right, we're reading questions on email or we have a topic and we can, through our conversation, you know, generally I think we're fairly thorough in the, in the way that we address a particular topic or answer a question. We have different approaches um, and usually when we read a question, we have uh, complementary but different um, ideas in terms of you know what what part of the response we think is really important to to get out there. Um, but what was really neat was even after you know you and I both have our our you know back and forth in terms of our answers to that question. There's that person still sitting there, and they can say, okay, well. Um, this part of my question I still have, or, you know, this, this then leads me to this follow-up question. And it was such a neat way to record a podcast. And I don't know how, you know, it's not a rate, like that's, that's what you would get on a radio show. It's not really something that the, uh, sort of mechanics of a podcast allow for on a regular basis. But, um, but it was, I, I thought that was a really, neat way to tackle a subject to be able to really have it as a conversation with um with an audience member 
super extra special shout out to the family who flew to Delaware and then together drove from Delaware to Northern Virginia to yes. come to this tape to, to the taping of the Paleo View. Like they weren't doing anything else in Washington, right. DC. They came to see us. And it was so amazing and special. And a sister brought her other sister in the hopes of motivating her because she was having gallbladder and some other issues and questions that you heard in the last uh, podcasts. So um I just think that is so cool when we meet people who feel so connected or inspired or whatever the case may be, that they're willing to spend so much of their own personal time to come and spend it with us. So we are so grateful and lucky to have you ladies. I know that you're listening today and thank you to everybody, obviously, but super extra shout out to the people who came from halfway across the country. Uh, yeah, I think they, they came from just about as far as I came from. Like that was, yeah. Um, or maybe even slightly farther. Yeah. I can't remember their origin, but I think it was like the Ohio. Yeah. It was like the middle of the country somewhere. And then they flew to Delaware to their sister's house and then drove to see us. So that's amazing. Yeah. Um, no, it was, it was a great crowd and, um, it was a really great experience and, um, I hope we can figure out ways of doing that again in the future. Um, it's, it's Trixie. So we'll, we'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to fit, think that. The think fact that, that all the puzzle pieces came together was kind of magical. So I mean, we know it, it was five, last it minute. It took five but... years. Yeah. So, um, but, but now that, now that we've, we've, we've done, we've done that one recording, hopefully we can figure out, maybe it could be like a one year, like a yearly anniversary <laughs> thing or something. We can figure that out. But, um, yeah, I I really enjoyed that experience. But now, so back if our to listeners are regularly are, scheduled programming, exactly. If they've hung in this long, they probably think that it's not a real show, but it is a real show. It's a real because, show. Um, so I have had a couple of questions that I've thrown your way while you've been finishing the book, and we knew that a couple of them were going to be doozies, and we kind of tabled them. Um, but this one came up in a recent uh, Facebook palooza also i'll just say that um and after seeing the link a couple of times um i realized that the source of the information was not just some weird crackpot website but was you know a source that people would think was valid and so i wanted you to jump into the science of the claims that were being made because there was absolutely no source material and that's what you do best so I had to cap myself at four hours of research on this one <laughs> because I am trying to get a book to print. Um, and uh, so I, I, we should probably summarize what the, what the material was. But before we do that, I want to just have a little soapbox moment and talk about pseudoscience BS on the internet. Um, so there is... I'm a person who puts a lot of care and consideration and research into everything that I write. And I spend a lot of time reading scientific articles. I try to really understand the subject, the you know current state of knowledge of the field. And I try to summarize it in, in a very accessible way where I don't dumb it down, but I, I take that detailed science and take the time to explain it in a way that is accessible to most people and in a way that's actionable with citations to the source material, and then also being very fair. So uh, one of the things that I really like talking about within the paleo movement is um, the pros and cons of some things that some things that are not paleo, but maybe should be and some things that are paleo and maybe shouldn't be like I really, to me, how we define, you know, where we, we draw that line and how we define, yes, this is paleo or no, this isn't is, is a really interesting, it's like a philosophical debate at that point. And so you know, for me, I want to talk about here's here's the the merits of this food, and here's the things that are in this food that might be harmful, and then you have the information to really go away, and you understand now this topic, so you can go away and make your own choices. So I I really consider myself a science translator. Uh, is sort of the heart of what I do. As I as I you know spend my time, um, you know, getting up to date on what academic researchers are doing, and then I write 
about it for the general public. And, um, and so because that's my approach, so my approach is trying to as accurately as possible represent the average, you know, the consensus or the, the state of, of knowledge in a, on a specific topic with citations. When I read articles that, you know, this is this, this relatively recent phenomenon, it's been getting bigger and bigger over the last few years, but there's these articles that are always, they always are centered around a scientific truth. So there is always, it always starts with something that is true and valid, and then it expands from there and it coats, I think, a narrative in technical words. And sometimes it's really obvious to me because of my background that the author doesn't actually understand the meaning of the technical words. And sometimes it's really obvious that they um, do understand them and they're using them to manipulate. I don't want to say deceive because I don't want to go that far, but they're using them to color a narrative. And then you get the whole, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to distill what's actionable. When you get this whole like, and here's what you really ought to know, um, you know, for all you people who I know, I don't, I know you don't really want to read all this sciencey language. And then, so then you get this, like this science language around an idea that is not actually supported by the science language around it, and then a complete lack of citations. I mean, to me, this is the hallmark of articles that people should, when they see them, turn around and go the other way. Because 99 times out of 100, there is it, – it's, it's anywhere between, between mostly not true to – at least untrue enough that you're better off seeking your information elsewhere. Like it's, it's, it's very, it's, there's a huge range, but it, it's one of the things that I, you know, I get asked a lot. What do you think of this article? What do you think of this article? And I, I'm, I feel, um, you know, very honored that, um, I get to be this, you know, (laughs) trusted source to rebut these crazy claims that are on the internet. But at the same time, it's it's so much work. Hang on, I gotta take a drink of my tea. <clears throat> I'm sorry for the cut point. I just got really dry throat all of a sudden. It's because we haven't talked in so long. All right, <clears throat> better. So, you know, as we actually like delve into this topic, I think I I just kind of wanted to preface everything with, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges right now that we face as a society is um, fact checking. You know, there's so much misinformation on the internet. You know, I, it's hard to say how much valid information there is in comparison to invalid information. And we're seeing this across the board. And within diet and lifestyle and health sphere, there's that misinformation can be dangerous. Um, Sometimes it, you know, if it's as, as harmless as you're not eating carrots when carrots are a perfectly good food, I mean, that's, that's probably not going to hurt you, but there's certain, you know, things that are expounded on, on the internet that are, are not safe. And, um, and so I really want to encourage our listeners to at least have some strategies for how seriously you take the information you see. So, um, you know, it's, it's always good to see if you can find, you know, have your reputable sources that you go to, your trusted sources, and see if you can find information from those sources. And I'm happy to be one of those. Um, but also look for things like citations, Um, Look for citations that have links to the original articles. Click on some of those links and see if they actually say what the article said. Um, You know, it's I know reading scientific abstracts is now we're into much more technical writing, um, but a lot of them are written at least, you know, the first sentence and the last sentence should give you a sense of 
whether or not that abstract is actually talking about the same thing. Um, and, you know, generally I encourage people to be skeptical of um, things that sound too good to be true and things that sound um, that sound like when articles are written in this overly technical way and then you're given this and, you know, this is this is just so that you understand I know what I'm talking about. That type of condescending language, if you feel like you are dumb reading an article, then that is not a good article. Um, it is, you know, there are plenty of people. I am not the only person out there. There are plenty of people who are taking the time to explain what scientific research can tell us about a topic in a way that everyone should be able to, or at least most people should be able to understand. So if you're reading an article and you're, you feel like you're not smart enough somehow, that should be a big red flag that this article is written to manipulate you. Um, and then always look for multiple sources, right? Like it doesn't mean that bad information can't spread and there won't be multiple sources of bad information, but, um, but it'll, it gives you this sort of backup in terms of, um, you know, getting at the, at the heart of whether or not something, something is valid. you probably, I probably like, you know, spoils like spoiler alert. <laughs> Most of the science in this particular article is not actually real. I'm shocked by your uh, soapbox speech there. And I knew that it was, <laughs> you knew. I knew that it was probably going to be that way because, um, that's totally how this particular article seemed to me. But then it was on, as I said, a website that I think a lot of people are using as source material and b believing what they're reading. And when I saw that there was absolutely no sources, I was like, well, how can anyone know what, like, how this not, is true or not? You know, all like this technical, all of this technical bullet points, right? Bullet points of technical language. <laughs> And not a single citation. Okay, so, so we've we've given a, a lot of. Yeah, now we're teased it. So sure. Summarize, please summarize the the article for us. Sure. So I think we've teased enough um, about what this perhaps pseudoscience article is about. Um, it was being circulated off of MTHFR. Um, website. And the title of the article is MTHFR Bad Food List. Now, as someone who has uh, genes for poor methylation, um, it was an article that was interesting to me and was being circulated in a community that I'm in. Um, and I was kind of curious to see if it was going to look like a paleo list. So I checked it out. And um, the 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 first of the article starts out by saying that um, folic acid or fake added folate isn't good because um, people with MTHFR need real sources of folate. Um, and I was like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Moving on, and then it's and and then it's other common bad foods for MTHFR. And it ranges from so many different classes of foods. There's not a consistency here. No theme. I, I could not make heads or tails of, right? It was like, um, some of them are legumes, some of them are fruits, which are completely, the, the, you know, like how they hit your body and how they're digested are completely different. Some of them were cruciferous vegetables. Um, seaweeds. There was a couple of seaweeds on the list. And um, ginger was on the list. And uh, anyway, there were some foods on here where I was like, these are foods that I would consider um, superfoods, like onions. Uh, and some other things where I'm like, I mean, yes, if you have... FODMAP issue or yes, if you have this, but there's no consistency, right? Like it's not a FODMAP list or a histamine list or uh, like there's, there's just nothing um, consistently here. So I was like, what? So I go to read, like, well, tell me why these are issues. And it was, um, it says they are high in substances that are known powerful enzyme and metabolic inhibitors. <sighs> okay. It's fine. It's fine. I can hold it together. I can hold it together. <laughs> um, 
But that's it. Like, that's all they say. They don't say which enzymes. They don't say why they're inhibiting metabolic um, regulation. It just says these are known powerful enzymes and metabolic inhibitors. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, what? Um, So then there's some hullabaloo about your energy. And then it... um, it says, as a result, you will make fewer amino acids and can't make as pro- as much protein as you should. This leads to lower immunity by reducing glutathione, which is one of the body's most important antioxidants involved in the homocysteine cycle. Well, it's not that I'm disputing that glutathione. I'm like, why, if I eat seaweed, am I going to make fewer amino acids and lower my immunity. Like, what is that mechanism? And why is it not spelled out here? Like, so that's where, um, so anyway, it was shared in a community. And immediately that community that I was in was like, oh, this is so helpful because I have MTHFR and I've been looking for, you know, a preferred method of uh, food that will be good for me. And there's nothing in here about like finding natural sources of B12 and all the other things that I know are really important. Like there's no, you should eat this food list, right? Like instead of saying what to stay away, there's no, and these would be really great for your energy levels and your nutrient absorption with um, MTHFR. So the whole thing, I just was like, this is shady. And I immediately replied to the group like, I'm going to ask Sarah to do a podcast on this. <laughs> and then I totally trapped you <laughs> to actually look well, at the Well, and it was one of those things, too, that I, you know, normally I think I probably would have said, like, yeah, I, I see that this is something we should tackle, but I don't actually have the time to research this right now. Can we put this off until the book goes to print? Like, I really didn't bad, think it was going to be that. Bad timing. But... It was one of those things that got me so riled up because, of course, MTHFR uh, variants that that impact uh, the efficacy of the methylation cycle are fairly common, and they're very, very strongly linked to health problems. So, in a way, this is you know this is bad information going out to a very susceptible group, right? A group of people who understand, right? If you have uh, an MTHFR a variant that's that's impacting methylation, you understand that food is very, very important. So a list like this, you're 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 in a you're generally going to be more receptive to this information. And when this information is um dumb, then like it's I, I feel like it's um it's really taking advantage of people who uh are desperate for information that much information you know, there's, there's still, this is still a fairly new field. There's still a lot of unanswered questions. Um, but this is, this is ridiculous. So the thing that got me when I was first reading through this, when you, when you texted me the, Hey, let's talk about this this week, um, was this, uh, you know, uh, let's not eat. Okay. First of all, folic acid or added folate or just Folate. I mean, it was like, hang on a second. Did you just say that folate-rich foods is not a good idea? Let's we we need to talk about that. And then here's all these foods that are bad for MTHFR. Some of these are incredibly nutrient dense foods, as you've already mentioned. And then here's how these foods affect people with MTHFR. And it's bullet points of sciency words: depletion of NADP. I guarantee you the author of this article has no idea what NADP and NADH are. Like, I, I just, it, and then I, you know, it, it goes on, right? It's a, it's like 30 bullet points of. But there's, the thing that gets me is there's no mechanism, like, why? You know, like the question, yeah, I'm that obnoxious to, person. They're trying to say that these mechanisms are why. And one of the things that, you know, I, again, right, I had to limit myself to four hours. There's, there's possibly some, you know, I'm going to talk about the the bits of the science that is valid that's mentioned in this article and then the stuff that is definitely not. But there's, there's a lot of stuff that I, you know, didn't have that. I didn't have the time to fact check every single food on that list. Um, But what, 
you know, if I was writing this article and this was my narrative, I would have had a here's the mechanisms and here's the compounds in which foods that this applies to. Or I would have been here's this food and the compounds in this food and here's the mechanisms that apply to this food. And then I would have had a list of scientific citations at the bottom of the article. I would have been drawing those connections and then I would have been explaining things like, you know, how, how, you know, the, these, you know, enzymes are important in the Krebs cycle, right? Like it, I would have had more background information in terms of like, how is this actually impacting your ATP production? And I feel like, you know, what this article has done is it's been like, here's the foods not to eat. And here's a bunch of sciencey words. Um, now don't eat those foods. And, um, and that, it just, it, uh, clearly, clearly touches a nerve as I'm sure all of our listeners have figured out by now, because I'm not usually, I'm not usually quite so soapboxy. Um, but I, I kind of want to talk about, you know, it's these types of articles that start with the grain of scientific truth. Um, and what this starts with is the idea that folic acid is not good for people with um, MTHFR variants. So, you know, specifically, you know, we're looking at there's there's two variants of MTHFR, uh, C667T and A1298C. You can have one or both, and you can have one copy or two copies of both. So, like the more you have, <laughs> generally, the more impeded your methylation is. But what these variants in the MTHFR gene do is they impact the basically the efficiency of the enzyme MTHFR. So for example, if you have the C667T uh, variant, your MTHFR is about 20% less effective, right? Less active. It can do about 20% less. So it's, it's, it's not like you, um, you know, your MTHFR enzyme can't do anything. Um, it's, it's just that it's not as efficient. So that means that anything else that's holding up uh, the methylation cycle is going to have a bigger effect. So the methylation cycle, we've talked about MTHFR on the podcast before, but just as like a quick reminder, um, MTHFR is the rate limiting enzyme in the methylation cycle. So it is the enzyme that controls how quickly our body can recycle methyl groups. And methyl groups are it's a, considered a post-translational modification. They're added or taken off of proteins, and that will turn a protein on or off. Some proteins are on when they're methylated. Some proteins are off when they're methylated. And methylation controls a, a huge variety of proteins, things like cortisol, um, neurotransmitters, right, things that have themselves really dramatic impacts on the human body. And defects in methylation have been um, associated with a fairly large number of chronic illnesses um, and uh, psychiatric um, problems. So they've been associated with like anxiety and depression, um, ADHD, um, uh, autistic spectrum disorder, uh, Alzheimer's. They've been associated with autoimmune diseases, a whole, whole pile of them, and cardiovascular disease. And it's it's because of this effect on the methylation cycle. Methylation is also a key, asp um, a key chemical reaction that's part of phase two liver detoxification. So it's the way that our liver can make fat-soluble toxins water-soluble so we can get rid of them. So that's a really, really important thing for detoxification. Um, and of course, you know, one of the reasons why there's so many um, psychological issues on, on this list that's associated with MTHFR is because um, methylation has a pretty dramatic effect on, on neurotransmitter regulation. So um, the other thing that it does is it impacts uh, the body's ability. There are certain vitamins that are only active in our bodies when they're in their methylated forms. So that's why folate is such a big deal because uh, so, you know, folate is vitamin B9. There's a few different, uh, a few different um, actual like variations of that chemical structure. Our body can take all of those chem those different variations, and then we have to convert it into methyl L-methylfolate. So we need 
methylfolate to be able to do all of its jobs in the body, right? It, um, B vitamins in general have a lot of controls of, um, of metabolism. And so that's one of the reasons why uh, some of the symptoms of what's called methyl donor deficiency. So you can, you can have methyl donor deficiency by having mutations of MTHFR, but you can also have it by having a diet that's really deficient in B vitamins, right? So especially folate, choline, and betaine. Um, betaine is a nutrient that we get in like beets and citrus fruits. It's really high in grapefruit, for example. So you can have, a, if you have a deficiency in these methyl donors, um, you do have, you know, problems with um, energy metabolism, lipid metabolism. It can cause uh, fatty liver disease. It can cause disorders in protein synthesis. So you're, you're, you do have some, some pretty pervasive effects from, you know, insufficient methylfolate and other methyl donors. What's interesting is um, in studies where they deplete people, they deplete people's diets of methyl donors. So they have a diet that's basically devoid of folate, choline, and betaine, and they start to measure these processes, right? They start to measure inflammation. They start to measure defects in, in metabolism. You don't necessarily have to give all of them. You can give you know, betaine or choline, and you can fix the problem really, really quickly. So, um, so where folic acid is a problem is that it takes basically more steps to become, like we can convert it into methylfolate, um, but it takes more steps than most forms of folate that we're getting from our food. Um, and the weight limiting step, the, the last step in conversion from folic acid into methylfolate requires MTHFR. So if you have um, a deficiency in MTHFR through some kind of genetic variant, um, and if you're taking uh, either supplements with folic acid or folic acid-enriched foods, you don't have the ability to convert that folic acid to the active form of folate that you need. And that's a problem because basically you can be consuming tons of folic acid. Someone can do a, a you know, blood test on you and see that you've got, you've got high levels of folic acid, but you're still functionally deficient um, because you're not actually converting it to methylfolate. And so what can happen is, um, and this is where science gets a little bit uncertain, um, it seems, even though this is a water soluble vitamin and we should have plenty of pathways for getting rid of it in our bodies, we do seem to be able to have too much of it. So plenty of nutrients have a, what's, you know, called a functional range or an optimal range. So we know there's all kinds of problems with too little and there's all kinds of problems with too little folate. And then there's problems with too much, right? So you can have vitamin A toxicity. You can have zinc toxicity, right? There's lots of nutrients that have, if you have too much of it in your body, especially when it's out of balance with the other nutrients that are involved in pathways. So vitamin A toxicity really only occurs in the context of vitamin D deficiency. So especially when you've got that imbalance happening, which is really something that only happens with supplements, um, that's where we can see toxic levels of a vitamin. And you don't normally see this with water-soluble vitamins because we just pee out the extra. I mean, that's when you take these huge doses of your B-complex vitamins or vitamin C, whatever your body can't use, it 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 gets eliminated. Um, but there seems to be some science showing that uh, people taking um, large doses of supplemental uh, folic acid or folate um, have higher risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. Now, low folate also is associated with higher risk of cardiovascular disease and cancer. So this particular water-soluble vitamin, there's still this Goldilocks zone in terms of how much we want. And how much we want is m more than what most people are getting. So this is really a warning against supplementation. But it, it may be magnified, and we don't actually know this from the science, but it sort of makes sense. If you are somebody who can't convert folic acid, and this might be affecting 30 to 40% of the population, if you're somebody who can't convert folic acid efficiently into methylfolate, that might be the person who has the higher risk of issues from taking 
high dose supplements of folic acid because that's when you get the folic acid buildup in your system. And there's lots of other, um, you know, as I was researching this and looking at different, um, oh, different, I was looking at scientific articles as well as other um, experts and and the articles that that they're um, writing for the for the general population. Um, there's some thought that maybe folic acid combined with folate receptors, and that's a problem. Um, but there's really no science to support that. It really just seems to be um, there's something about high levels of folic acid that um, it's not necessarily causing cancer, but it's driving cancer cell growth, especially lung cancer. So when you think of lung cancer as being a smoking-related disease, there's obviously some some additional factors in there. So what's fascinating to me is this idea of uh, folate being, you know, like we need folate. If you, if you have... Um, issues with MTHFR, the last thing you want is to be deficient in folate. And we can actually get methylfolate from foods. Um, the best sources are fruits and vegetables. And some fruits and vegetables that made it on the bad MTHFR food list. And I think that was because um, just because folic acid is not appropriate for people with MTHFR variants that are impacting the methylation cycle, um, Folate becomes even more important, especially being able to get methylfolate. And it's why it's the standard of care in functional and integrative medicine when people have either of these variants for MTHFR to get put on methylated B vitamins. I mean, not just folate, but also um, you know, B12 and B6, which are also involved in the methylation cycle. And then often you'll see, right, B2 is used in the conversion of uh, folic acid um, or other uh, folates into methylfolate. Um, choline and betaine are also methyl donors, so they become more even more important. So, you know, th these are the types of nutrients that um, would be provided supplementally to somebody in a sort of functional approach type practice. And so, the top food sources of folate, of specifically of methylfolate, so food sources that already have don't require any conversion; it's ready to go, are things like um, romaine lettuce and probably other leafy greens. Broccoli and cauliflower. Broccoli was on the bad food list. Asparagus, uh, kale and spinach, also more leafy greens. Cabbage, berries, citrus. There was some citrus on the the no the no foods list and fermented foods. And um, and actually, what's really interesting is a really high source of methylfolate is legumes. And there was a bunch of legumes on that list as well. And I mean, I'm I'm not going to recommend legumes, but um, but at the same time, like I just looked at this list, I was like, there's a bunch of foods on here that are actually really great sources of methyl donors. I don't understand. So um, what I did was I then, you know, once I wrapped my head around the grain of truth, that's where the grain of truth is in this article, that uh, folic acid enriched foods um, or folic acid supplements are not great for somebody with, with MTHFR um, gene variants. And I would definitely recommend if any of your listeners uh, have done genetic testing and do know that they have one or more of these um, or one or more copies of one or both of these uh, variants to talk to a functional medicine doctor and talk about supplementing with methylated vitamins. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty typical um, standard of care now for, for MTHFR variants. My doctor really liked the Vital Proteins liver pills because it was a whole food source of both B12 and folate. And liver is actually one of the only animal sources of methylated folate. Yep. So when I, they, they gave me a list of really expensive supplements I could take. And I was like, I'm taking this and I really like it. And they were like, yep, you're good. I'm like, okay. Um, well, and what's great too is it's, it's also has, you know, the choline, right? Like it also has um, the other B vitamins and uh, methionine, which of course is, intricately linked with this entire methyl cycle. So you've got the amino acids that are important as well. So, um, so I mean, when am I ever going to say no to liver? And especially the ease of liver in capsule form. Um, but so then what I did with this was then I had a look at this list of sciencey words. And I, and this list of, you know, what I did was I, I really highlighted the fruits and vegetables that were on this list that I know are 
ridiculously nutrient dense fruits and vegetables, right? The things that I want people to eat more of, not less of. Um, and I started, okay, okay. So our, our three main things is that they somehow interfere with ATP production. They somehow interfere with protein metabolism and or they sometime, somehow reduce glutathione production. And I, I just started looking in, in PubMed for articles and I, you know, I was doing like food name and MTHFR, food name and folate, food name and methylation, food name and ATP, food name and Krebs cycle, food name and metabolic inhibitor, food name and protein metabolism, food name and glutathione, right? And just trying to sift through, you know, so much of, um, you know, sometimes finding some of these, looking for a really obscure article, right? So sometimes if you're looking for like the one obscure article that actually says something really interesting, it's it's not going to come up on a standard search. So you have to kind of go through with PubMed and, and do, um, you know, go through the entire vocabulary to try and and tease out these articles. And, you know, what I found was that a bunch of the foods on this like bad MTHFR food list actually decrease inflammation and increase glutathione production. Uh, so the opposite of what, what the claim is. Um, the only things that I could find that were anywhere close to enzyme inhibitors, I couldn't find anything that was a metabolic inhibitor. I could find a couple little bits and pieces that were enzyme inhibitors and they were studies that were looking to uh, identify compounds in um, in fruits and vegetables that were potentially drug targets. So there was a fairly large collection of, um, of papers that were looking at compounds in these foods um, that were glucosidase, alpha-glucosidase inhibitors. Um, glucosidase is uh, an enzyme that is part of digesting glucose, and there's this idea that this might be a really beneficial thing to give diabetics. Is that tiny, wee tiny bit of an alpha-glucosidase inhibitor that's in a fresh apricot going to be a problem for everybody else? No, that's not, that's not that's not an issue. I mean, when you look at um, you know one of the the uh, compounds that are in grains that are so problematic, and we also see it a little bit in uh, legumes and pseudogreens is digestive uh, enzyme inhibitors. So these cause inflammation in the gut. They can uh, cause gut dys dysbiosis. Um, you know, they're they're generally not a good thing to have in high quantities from food. But, you know, if you look at a whole food, um, you know, a fruit, for example, or a vegetable, these typically have some kind of mechanisms to protect themselves from predation, from insects, from pests, from being eaten, um, or some way of reproducing despite being eaten. Like berries actually reproduce better if they've been eaten because they get to be planted in manure at the other end. Um, so, you know, when you, they, these, there's, these compounds are in all foods. The difference is how strong they are, how much they, how much there is of them, and the other nutritive value of the food. So we put all foods on this balance of what's in this food that is valuable nutrition and what's in this food that can potentially undermine our health. When you're talking about fresh fruits and vegetables, the amounts of you know digestive enzymes inhibitors are negligible, um, bar like barely measurable compared to the really large amounts that are in grains. And so I I could not find anything other than this handful of studies that was trying to identify novel compounds that might be useful uh, for, you know, drug development for diabetics. I could not find anything that could even start to support the fruits and vegetables on this food list, um, which was driving me crazy because I probably looked at 300 papers, I mean, abstracts, I mean, there was only, there was only a couple dozen that I probably skimmed through the papers. But um, it, it, if this, you know, when you've got the mechanisms in front of you in this article, and you've got the food list in front of you in this article, if there was any merit to it, I should have been able to hit on at least one thing that was 
true and valid and verifiable in the amount of time that I had donated to researching this topic. Um, And so I don't even completely understand the approach that this author has. And I, and I feel like, um, I don't feel like this article is is designed to deceive. I feel like it's more likely written by somebody who thinks they understand the science who who doesn't understand it as well as they think they do and they've got they've had some, you know, there's some group of compounds that they were specifically had specifically identified through some paper they read as maybe being a problem and then was looking for foods with those compounds. But I could not I could not find any actual valid link. And so, um, you know, it's, it's maybe with 12 more hours, I might've found something. Maybe there are a couple items on, on that list that are, that are really. How how much time do you think that they were researching on PubMed with zero sources? Um, given that the article is three paragraphs and two bullet point lists, um, (laughs) Yeah, I think I think enough said. You're you're giving it a little more credit than I think it deserves. But well, I don't I don't you know I sometimes when I read these articles, I read in nefarious intent, whether it's there or not. To me, that's the way it feels. This one didn't feel that way. Um, it felt like an honest. I have this list, and it may have even been a list that was cobbled together from other articles on the internet, even though I couldn't actually find other sources of the same material. Um, And I mean, that happens, right? Like there are plenty of bloggers out there who their articles are their own retelling of the information they've gotten from other sites. And that's actually a great thing. When you think about what that's done in the paleo community, that's been the megaphone that's been allowed, allowed us to, spread the message. That also means that the few places where the paleo movement might be steering a little off course gets magnified as well, which is why it's important for, um, you know, people who, who do write direct from the scientific literature and the source to, to be aware of what's being talked about in the community and rebut it when necessary. Um, but I think that, you know, this article to me just felt like, um, it felt like somebody who believed what they were saying, but didn't really understand it. Um, but you know, there's a short of sending them an email and calling them out, which I really don't have time to do. Um, you know, there's really no way to know, but I, I, I sort of want to center back to, um, two, two points. One, there is a lot of good information for um, MTHFR um, variant uh, challenged people. And, um, you know, it, it is something that is on the radar of most functional integrative practitioners. So, you know, finding a good, um, you know, a good doctor to work with, you're, you're going to be able to get that type of expertise in a lot more places than you will say somebody who can help you navigate the autoimmune protocol. So it, it's, it's a, a much more, um, it's much more recognized in mainstream than uh, a lot of other health issues that we talk about or a lot of, a lot of other sort of uh, health challenges that are so directly related to diet that we talk about. Um, but the other, the other thing that I want to circle back to is um uh, you know, pseudoscience is um, is rampant on the internet, and the the best thing that we can do um, to really insulate ourselves against bad information is to take the onus ourselves to inform ourselves. And I mean, there was a story this week on NPR that basically said that the more people that we are around at the time, so in a Facebook group where one person shares something and everybody's commenting on it, or you're in a room and you, you hear, um, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, you read some website or you hear some kind of news story or whatever. Um, the more people we're around when we're gleaning this information, the less critically we think about it. And it's because, 
we assume that somebody around us will have fact-checked it. Um, and so the best thing that we can do is be the fact-checker, checker, be the person who looks at this information skeptically. You know, I, I really do not believe in censorship on the internet. And I don't believe that having some kind of quality control metrics would actually work the way it, it should, right? Like if, if, if we went that way, I don't think good things would happen. Um, so if we're going to have this complete freedom to post whatever we want on the internet, we, you know, we have to be aware that there's a huge number of people out there, uh, posting things on beautifully designed sites with very reputable sounding, um, names that really don't know what they're talking about. And so then it becomes important for each one of us to think critically and be, um, a little bit skeptical. Um, but, but to really, you know, take ownership of understanding whether or not that particular information is valid. I think we've, you know, always encouraged everybody to, you know, be your own advocates, research, you know, um, what's the phrase trust, but verify. <laughs> I don't, I I like don't know if you actually want to trust, but I would recommend verify because it took 30 seconds for me to look at that site and identify that there was something off, that there were no sources. And so, especially if I'm going to see foods that, you know, I think of that being as being nutrient dense superfoods, I want to know specifically like, well, why isn't this going to be good for me? Because, you know, someone can easily tell me why a FODMAP or why a nightshade might cause my system to be bad. But if someone isn't telling me the mechanism behind why, whatever their recommendation is, um, it makes it really difficult for me to logically put that together myself. And I am neither a PhD, super smarty pants, know everything, and I am also not really stupid and ignorant. So to me, I'm like, if if these questions are something I can think of um, and there's no answers in the source material, you can always ask the author. Of course, they might have forgotten source doc, uh, links or something like that. I, every once in a while, I post a science article and I forgot to copy the citations into the article. Like yeah. I usually keep the citations in a separate document. And so sometimes that means... I post it and I forgot to put the citations. And also, as a like slight aside, um, there are some websites that I know of that I'm I'm not going to call out because I'm not that kind of person, but that do put citations that really have nothing to do with what they're talking about. And right, I mean, you've got to look at them. Yeah. Um, at least, at least one or two at random, <laughs> you know, like if, you, you don't have to, if someone posts 50 references, you don't have to go look up every single one, but one or two at random to see if it actually, um, you know, and actually look at the abstract, not just the title. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully this has inspired you to encourage not just yourself, but your friends, because the first thing I did in that community was say, Hey, I don't see any source information here. This seems weird based on the information that I know about um, my own MTHFR and what foods would have the foods that I need. Um, I'm going to ask Sarah. Not everybody <laughs> can say that second part, but you know, but you can um, do preliminary research yourself on something to see if it's consistent or if it doesn't fly or you know, ask the author and don't be afraid to engage in a discussion. I think I see this, especially on Facebook where, you know, I think the, the popular word for it is fake news, right? But it's like, if an article is being shared that uh, doesn't appear to be based entirely in fact and source material, there's nothing wrong with engaging in a discussion about that with your friends and family to highlight for them that clickbait information and websites that are, you know, targeting, they are, this is, this is the thing that websites are doing now is that they know that people will click based on certain kinds of articles and they phrase the things that they're writing to simply get your click. They are not interested in sharing information. They are interested it in website traffic. It really, really wrecks it for the rest of us. Yes. 
So, you know, just, you know, the minute that you see something that looks clickbaity, I'm going to say nine times out of 10, it's not going to be worth clicking, but that's just my own opinion. I mean, it's totally worth clicking if it comes from the paleomom.com or realeverything.com. I'm just saying. Well, I don't go out of my way to make clickbait, but um, I do know that, you know, grandparents, for example, might not have this level of familiarity and trust because when they were our age, there was only encyclopedias and actual facts. And so the idea of somebody doing something shady isn't something that would occur to them. So sometimes I have to remind people in my life that when they share articles that there's no source for it and not to be up in a tizzy about coconut oil, for example. Right. So, you know, just don't don't be afraid. And hopefully this is, has helped give you some ideas on how to approach um, when you find different things like this. And also for those of you that are MTHFR, first of all, fist bump. Um, and second of all, hope this helped. And we will always do what we can with this podcast, with our social media and with our websites to, you know, counter this inaccurate information with quality information whenever we see these types of articles trending that are, you know, really demonstrably false. Um, but, um, you know, when we, we, it always takes us some time, right? Like um, for me to write a, a proper rebuttal, it's usually two, three, four weeks after the fact. And, um, and that's when I, I don't have a book about to go to the printer. So, um, you know, while, while you wait for the people that you trust to, research things accurately and give you accurate information. Um, I think looking at source material and having conversations with your peer group about um, how that information fits into what else you know is the absolute perfect place to start. So thanks again for listening and special thanks for all of your support and encouragement over the last Five years. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed our live podcasts. I know that we probably said that in those podcasts, but now we're saying it again a few weeks later for those of you who just listened to them. So thank, thanks again for listening and for staying around with us and for being part of our community. We think that you are all amazing, special people, and we're so happy to have you in our lives. So have a great week, everybody, and we will be back again live like this next week <laughs> the, the the unlive live the unlive live yes thanks for listening thank you for listening to the paleo view if you enjoyed the show please take a moment to rate us on itunes you can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through paypal god you scared me Okay, sorry, sorry, it's child. It's child behind me. <laughs> sorry. sorry, sorry, you scared me. You can't sleep? Okay, it's okay. It's okay. You were just, a, you were just, you were much taller than the cat. I thought you were the cat. I have the ma- most massive adrenaline like rushing through my system. I'm going to be up for like the next three hours now. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.